is Mike, as Mike has said. So if you're not sure uh, who someone is, you can't remember the name, just say Mike. You're more than likely to get it right. And it's really a pleasure to be with you here this evening. And uh, as you can probably hear, I'm not from around these parts. I am from a somewhere a little bit further south than we are right now this evening. That is Cape Town, South Africa, separated by a small distance of around 18 hours flight, courtesy of Emirates. But that's neither here nor there. And it's great to be with you. I came to the United Kingdom about a year ago, and that was to study theology and apologetics at the University of Oxford. And that is with Ravi Zacharias and International Ministries. And then this year, I am a postgraduate student at Oxford studying theology, and I'm a speaker for the Zacharias Trust, which is part of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And what we do, basically, is that we want to take people's questions seriously. We believe that our culture is asking really good questions, sincere questions about the Christian faith, about spiritual things, and we believe that good questions uh, require good answers. So we are doing our best to think through these questions. We're doing our best to think through these questions that often act as barriers for belief um, in, the, in the God of the Bible, in the Christian God. So we're thinking through these questions, and we're wanting in the best way possible to give an honest answer to them and to demonstrate as best we can that actually there are really good answers for the questions that we have um, in today's culture and society. Speaking of questions, I've been given uh, a really interesting one this evening to speak about, and it's not going to come up on the screen, I don't think, so I'll just tell you. It's a question, how do I find happiness? How do I find happiness? And I'm not sure what springs to mind as you think about that question. And I know that as we think about happiness, we're not just talking about something we all think about in the same way. Some of us are coming at this question saying, of course it's easy to be happy. You know, you go look at nature, you go for a run, you go for a walk, and happiness comes to you. It's something that you can just enjoy, something that we just enter into as human beings. It's there, it's all around us, it's easy to be happy. Well, for some of us that may be the case, but for others, others of us, we're sitting here, we look at this question, and we think, actually, I don't think it's that easy to find happiness. I'm not even sure where to look. I'm not quite sure the right questions to ask. I'm not quite sure of the right places I need to visit in order to find this elusive thing called happiness. Some of us find it difficult when we think about happiness, possibly for situational reasons, possibly for financial reasons, possibly for chemical reasons. It's difficult for us to experience the happiness that we long to experience. It's not an easy question for some of us to answer. So we approach this question from a different perspectives, but I would say regardless of from the position we approach these questions, the reality is, I would argue, at the very least, this question has, all, has crossed all of our minds. Is that a safe assumption? It's crossed every single one of our minds. But more than that, I would say, I think this question is one of the questions that we are considering in our culture today. It's one of the leading questions we're asking. How do I find happiness? How do I fill my life with happy, colorful things? I think that's the question that we're asking today. So when it comes to vocation, when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to lifestyle choices, we're asking the question, or we're thinking about, what is it that's going to make me happy as being the guiding question for those decisions that we're making? What is it that's going to make me happy? And let me act in accordance with that. Or I suppose we can also recollect a mother or a close friend's warm, reassuring voice saying, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. The implication is, make sure that whatever it is that you do, it leads to happiness. Let that be the guiding principle. Well, sometimes happiness is discussed as a pursuit. I think of the U.S. Declaration of Independence that was penned at the end of the 18th century, and the writers of the Declaration of Independence said that we all have an unalienable right to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's something that we are as a human being entitled to pursue. And anything that hinders us from the pursuit of happiness ultimately is denying us what it really means to be a human being. Sometimes it's described in those terms. But as we think about happiness, I think at this point there's a lot of questions that come to mind. What is it that really makes us happy? What are the things I need to get my hands on in order to be happy? What is worthwhile pursuing? And once we have happiness, how do we keep it? 
It's a bit of a slippery customer happiness. One day we can feel it, we can sense it, we can enjoy it. The next day it seems to be gone for no reason that we can discern. How do we keep it once we have it? So how do we find happiness, or where do we find happiness? Do we find it in the possession of material things? I remember as growing up as a 12, 13-year-old, every single day there was one thing that I wanted that I thought about all the time, a PlayStation 1. All I wanted, and uh, this was back in the day when those were the latest model, and uh, every day I woke up thinking maybe this will be the day where I open my door after waking up and it will just be sitting outside that door. Maybe my mom and dad would have just done that for me, or maybe today is the day my dad comes back from work and he wants to surprise us with a PlayStation 1, and I woke up every day with this hope lingering on my mind. Uh, Needless to say, I was disappointed day in and day out until we started a little fund. And every time we had change uh, from a leftover shopping experience or pocket money that I'd saved up, we'd pop it into this little box that was a PlayStation 1 fund. All the while, I'm dreaming, uh, thinking about uh, the day I'm going to get this PlayStation 1. Eventually, the day arrives, we have enough money, and I get it. And it was amazing for the first hour, for the first week, for the first month. And then I couldn't stop thinking about the PlayStation 2. I just wanted to get my hands on the PlayStation 2. See, the reality is that it's, it's so strange how those things that we can be thinking about, those things we can be dreaming about, those things we can even lose sleep over, are the very things, once we get them, that we're kind of inoculated towards within months, within a week, within a day, sometimes within hours. They simply don't have what we think they have in them. See, happiness always seems to be an upgrade away. It always seems to be that model. It always seems to be this iPhone 6S, not the iPhone 6. It always seems to be the next upgrade that promises the happiness that we're looking for. It's always around the corner. So I think if we're honest, if we do a bit of honest reflection, a bit of an honest audit, we would say, yeah, I, I can agree with that. I don't think you know, intuitively that there's anything particularly life-altering in possessions. They're good to have. They're useful to have. Material things are necessary. But ultimately, I know I'm not going to find my deepest fulfillment and happiness from these things. I think we could possibly intuitively agree with that. What about happiness in achievement and success? Achievement and success. If it's not material things, what about achievement and success? Boris Becker, the German tennis player, was one of the youngest people to win uh, Wimbledon Championship. And he says this, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player, I had all the material possessions I needed, money, cars, women, everything. I know that this is a cliche. It's the old song of the movie and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. Boris Becker. Or perhaps closer to home, we can think of Jack Higgins, one of uh, Britain's greatest international best-selling authors. And uh, he has 84 novels, in fact, in total that he's written, have all, have uh, over 150 million copies have been sold, and they've been translated into 55 different languages. I mean, this is someone that has been incredibly successful in his given field and discipline. And he was once interviewed a few years ago on British radio, and the interviewer asked him a really interesting question. The interviewer said to him, Jack, what is it that you wish you had been told when you were younger? What is it now in your older age you wish you had known when you were younger and you were starting out? And without missing a beat, he replied to the question and said, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. That when you get to the top, there's nothing there. And I think it's interesting for us to consider that uh, as people, I include myself in this absolutely, <laughs> that we may be good at what we do, we may be very good at what we do, we may be the best at what we do in our company, in our city, in our town, but there always seems to be someone better than us. These individuals, Boris Becker, Jack Higgins, are examples of people that have actually made it to the top of the pile. And what have they seen when they got there? What did they experience when they got to the top of this pile? Well, they seem to say that actually my my ladder was resting against the wrong building. There wasn't anything there. It was a bit of a vacant experience. I think that's quite telling. All right, so you may be thinking, this is sounding a bit bleak. I didn't come here to be told that there's no such thing as happiness, and that seems to be where this is going, so where's the good news? 
uh, I'm very glad that you are picking that up and stay with me. Hopefully it's going to become clear where we're going with this. But I'm just wanting to get us thinking a bit more, in a bit more depth about these things. So let's keep going. This past Sunday, the world remembered uh, the 15th anniversary of 9-11 terror attacks in New York. It was a, a devastating event that had ripple effects throughout the world, considering what a few individuals could do, what a few individuals could devastate um, through their decisions and what actions they had performed. There were many remarkable instances from that event. Obviously, the devastation is the one side of it that we think about um, in this time of remembering that date. But the other side is the the remarkable acts of heroism and self-sacrifice and giving that were performed on that day. One other remarkable element of that what we remember are some of the phone calls that were made by those that were on planes that were hijacked, that those that were in the buildings that had been hit by these planes. And uh, the phone calls that they made were incredibly telling of what we look to in our moments of greatest trauma, what we think is valuable in our moments of desperation and need. See, not one of these people that called uh, on that had an opportunity to use their phone called the bank. Not one of them uh, called... You know, people that owe them money, they're all called spouses, they're all called loved ones, they're all called cherished friends, and just wanted to say, I love you. This is what's going on. This is the situation that I find myself in. I just want you to know that I love you. I'm not going to make it, but I want you to know that I love you. So I think trauma and pressure reveals really what's dearest and most important to us. I think I'd like to suggest that what we really value What ultimately makes us happy appears to be relationship. It appears to be relationship. Real, intimate, deep relationship with one another. However, even these break down, even these let us down. People will hurt us unintentionally or intentionally. We know from statistics that divorce is higher than it's ever been before. People break trust, people let us down, they get it wrong. Human beings and human relationships are fragile at best, and we know that to put all of our hope in human beings in a relationship with with someone, though valuable, though important, though dear to us, ultimately is not the safest grounds ultimately for us to find our happiness. So where to from here, and what does Christianity have to say to this particular issue of our happiness and how we find happiness? Well, recently an Australian group research group from Deakin University published some really, really interesting results about happiness. They call them the golden triangle of happiness. It's not a Christian study. It's not done by Christian individuals. It's not done by a Christian university. This is a a purely secular study that was done over the course of 15 years with over 60,000 people involved in the study. Two of them were done a year for 15 years. And it had an interesting conclusion. The conclusion was this. That besides genetics, there are three simple indicators of a happy life. Three. So that's great news. It's not a thousand. It's not 500 things. There's three, apparently, things that are indicators of a happy life. And those three things are this. The happiest people enjoy intimate relationships. We've just noted that, but it's good to hear that some studies are corroborating that. The happiest people are those that have intimate relationships, number one. Number two, the happiest people are those who are active, have goals, and have a sense of purpose in their lives. Number three, the happiest people are those who have financial control. So the happiest people are those who have intimate relationships, who have purpose and meaning, and who have stability, control, security. So those three things, never mind all of those sentences, all of those long words, just these three things, this is what the study suggested, that the happiest people are those who have healthy relationships, have a sense of meaning, and a sense of security in their life. What I want to do for the next few minutes as we kind of head towards concluding what it is that I want to say this evening is I want to demonstrate how the Christian worldview, the Christian belief, these things are core and central to what the Christian message is about, and more particularly to who the the central figure of Christianity is about, and that is Jesus Christ. How does Jesus and the Christian message speak to these three things of security, meaning, and relationship? So firstly, security. Well, I know what it's like to feel totally insecure. 
I'm just going to admit that up front. I know what it's like to be insecure. I know what it's like to feel unsure of myself. I know what it's like to feel divided in my own sense of what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing, not understanding my motives or my thoughts. When I was in high school, I struggled quite intensely with acute anxiety. And so for me, that was a very disorientating experience, trying to come to terms with the irrationality sometimes of what anxiety is. It, it doesn't flare up because there's a good reason for it necessarily. It just seems to be a response that comes about um, for reasons that I can't quite understand myself. It kind of felt like a big elephant in the room of my life. You know, so it was this huge elephant of anxiety that I didn't want to disturb. It was present. I was aware of it. It was aware of me. And the best thing that I could think of doing in the face of this terrible present anxiety was to avoid it was to make decisions that didn't disturb this elephant of anxiety that was in my life. So I figured out very creative and strategic ways to walk around it. So just to make sure I didn't set it off, I would walk very quietly around it and make sure that I avoided all things that could possibly set off this incredible anxiety that was in my life. The reality is that you can't avoid it for too long and you can't avoid it very well. And for me, it was a dominating experience growing up and not being able to get past it, not seeing a way to work my way through it. I felt, inc- I felt in a sense, maybe the best word to describe it is to, is to feel a kind of enslavement to this over- overarching, dominating sense of anxiety that was so present in my life. I felt insecure. I felt unstable. I felt enslaved even. I think there are many facets to security, but when, we, when, I think, when I think of security, I think what we are speaking about is the search for stability. We're talking about the hope of kind of a, an existential poise in the midst of life's uncertainties and difficulties. How do we find that balance? How do we find that poise? See, there are really so many unknowns. There are so many things we just can't foresee coming up. We sometimes don't know what to think. We sometimes don't know what to feel. We sometimes don't know how to make sense of our own motives and thoughts. A bit like me, we don't understand ourselves. And then into all of this, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, there's a kind of truth that leads to freedom. What truth could Jesus possibly be referring to? What is he speaking about? What does he mean you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free? I think he means this, that in himself, he is God, that he is the creator of life. He holds the blueprint to life. He holds the keys to life. And what that means is he, know how, he knows how it best works. He knows how it functions. He knows the, the strains. He knows the ups and downs. He knows how it works. And as, as we come to him as God, He's able to give us direction. He's able to give us a sense of purpose. He's able to help us navigate the difficulties and complexities that left to ourselves we find incredibly difficult to make sense of and to navigate. As God, he's got the blueprint. But also we see in the life of Jesus that he is God come in human flesh, in human likeness. And therefore he's also come as a human being, which means he understands and can sympathize with those areas of of deepest vulnerability in our lives. He can sympathize with the weaknesses. He can sympathize with the external pressures and strains and demands of busyness and life and living. Jesus was homeless. Jesus, more often than not, probably didn't know where his next meal was coming from. He understands what it is to be in this world and to face the difficulties of this world. And I think what he is saying when he's saying, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, he is saying, as God, I know what it is to live life to the full, to have life that is truly life. If you come to me, I can give that to you. But also he's saying, as, a, as God who became man, who took on human likeness, he understands the unique struggles of human beings and has a unique capacity to respond to us in those moments of vulnerability. There's an early Christian writer who said something that I love. He said, Only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. Now, there's some big words there. Only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. The immutable is that which doesn't change, and tranquility is that that state of having an undisquieted or undisturbed being. It's, It's having that poise that we spoke about earlier. What the writer is saying is ultimately it's only that thing, that object, that doesn't ever change or have the capacity to let us down that is able to really bring us a sense of security and peace. 
And he's arguing that only God, as the immutable one, the truly unchanging one, is able to be the object of our security and peace. So I think firstly, we see the happiest people are those that have a sense of security, and I think there's a great case to be made that within the Christian worldview and belief, there is a security that available to us that is like no other. But secondly, we see that there's also needing to find a sense of meaning in our lives in order that we experience happiness. And I think that which is meaningful is that which is true and that which truly speaks to the human condition. That which is meaningful or full of meaning is that which is true and that which truly speaks to the human condition, what we experience as human beings. In modern philosophy, I'm going to do a little bit of hard thinking here for about two minutes, and then I'll move on. So if you don't want to engage in this, you can switch off. That's fine. I won't be offended. But I do think it's interesting, so I encourage you to stay tuned. Modern philosophy gives us three tests for truth. And saying basically that in order for us to discern what is true, they need to pass through these three things. The first is logical consistency, that, that a system of thought has to come through this particular test, and we have, to, we have to say, is it in and of itself logically consistent? Are there no internal contradictions within the system of thought? It's got to be logically consistent. But secondly, it's got to be empirically uh, adequate. Empirical means it can be observed or experienced. It's not just pure logic, but it's got to be something that's observed, something that we can experience. Is it um, empirically adequate? Is there a sense in which we can observe and experience this thing in our lives as people? But then thirdly, it's got to be experientially relevant. It's not just something we experience or can experience, but it's got to be relevant to our experience as human beings, something we can relate to, something we can access, something that makes a difference to life as we know it. So to summarize those three things quickly down into three words, it's got to have consistency, it's got to be verifiable, and it's got to be relevant. So when considering a worldview, when considering a system of thought, a way of seeing the world, we've got to pass it through those three things, consistency, verifiability, and relevance. And it's also got to answer the questions of origin. Where do we come from? Identity, who am I? Purpose, what am I living for? Morality, how do I live? Destiny, where am I going? If a system of thought, a way of looking at the world, doesn't speak to these um, universal human questions and needs that we have, if it doesn't pass through these tests of truth, then we need to find a new worldview, or at least consider finding a new worldview. For example, the, the atheistic, materialistic view of the world, which is essentially a view which holds that there's no God, and a view which holds that there's nothing beyond the material, physical world that we live in. An atheistic, materialistic worldview essentially denies ultimate meaning on the basis of randomness. So because there is no agent that designed the world, because there is no super being that designed the world, there is therefore no meaning. We are simply the product of time plus matter plus chance. There is nothing beyond the process. And because there's nothing beyond the natural evolutionary biological process, there is no meaning that is fed into the system from an external objective good source. So the atheistic materialistic worldview essentially says asking questions of ultimate meaning is invalid. Asking questions of ultimate meaning is a meaningless exercise. As Richard Dawkins has uh, been often quoted, uh, he says, essentially, the world is blind, has blind, pitiless indifference towards our questions of meaning and towards our questions of suffering. DNA just is. It neither knows nor cares, and we dance to his music. That's a Richard Dawkins quote. So it denies us the ability to ask those questions of ultimate meaning. And I would suggest that on that basis, it denies us the questions that are really truly human. It denies us the questions that as human beings we long for answers to. And I would suggest and argue that the Christian worldview passes these three tests incredibly passes these, uh, these tests of consistency, verifiability, and relevance incredibly well and answers those questions of origin, identity, morality, purpose, and destiny that we have as human beings. If you want me to speak more about that, I can do that during the Q&A time that we're having after this, but I'm going to leave that there for the moment. So not only does Christianity speak to our sense of and our need for security, 
It also speaks to that sense and that desire for meaning in our lives. But we know there's one left, right? There's relationship. But the happiest people are those that have a sense of security. The happiest people are those that have a sense of meaning. And lastly, the happiest people are those that have a sense of relationship. People are often surprised to hear that Christianity actually has relationship at its center, that it's a relational faith. It's based on relationship. It's often very surprising, and sometimes when I say that to people who aren't yet convinced of the Christian claims, they'll say to me, but isn't Christianity about keeping the rules? Isn't Christianity about doing the right thing, about being more moral today than you were yesterday? And another question that comes often is, well, what does it even mean to have a relationship with God? It feels so abstract to say that. I mean, the elephant in the room is that we can't see God. How to have a relationship with that which I cannot see? How is that even possible? These are great questions. They're very important questions to ask. And I hope that if some of you are here and have those questions, that you feel like you can ask them. They're important questions to ask. C.S. Lewis the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia has an analogy that I think will really help us in understanding what it means and how it is that we can have a relationship with God. So oftentimes when we think of God, we think of God and relate to him, this is Lewis's analogy, like the person on the first floor relating to the person on the second floor of a two-story house. We kind of imagine that person craning their neck, looking up on the balcony, shouting you know, questions, and the person on the, on the top, the second floor, looking down and shouting directives and commands, and there's this kind of abstract um, toing and froing, but there's, you know, this, is, you know, this is what it's like when we talk about relating to God. He's up there, and we are down here, and somehow there's just this kind of shouting match, but there's no sense of real intimacy or knowledge of one another. We're just neighbors that happen to be in the same building, but there's nothing real, no real substance to that. I think also of um, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin in 19, I think it was 1963. Someone can correct me if that's wrong. I think, actually earlier, 1956, no, 1963. Yuri Gagarin was the first cosmonaut in space. And obviously he was part of the communistic Soviet Union. And uh, he went up into space and he came down and told the world that he had been up to the highest point of the world and he hadn't found God. God was not there. Therefore, God does not exist. And Lewis, who was existing at this time and lived around this time, read that article, engaged with the thoughts, and said, actually, this is not at all how it is that we relate to and know God. It's not like we go up as high as we can, and there's God, or there God is not. It's not like the person on the first floor of a two-story building shouting up to the person on the second floor. The way in which we get to know God is more like the way in which Hamlet would be able to know Shakespeare. Now the question at this point is, how would it be possible for Hamlet, a character in Shakespeare's play, to ever know Shakespeare? How would that be possible? The only way that Hamlet could know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare wrote information about himself into his play. And I think this is the powerful illusion that C.S. Lewis is drawing, is that ultimately there's no way for us as if you like characters in the story of God, according to the Christian worldview, to ever engage with God unless God wrote information about himself into the world that he created. But more than that, not just writing information about himself, but actually writing himself in, in the likeness of his son, so that we could engage with God himself, so that we could have a full sense of who God is when we look at the son. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if we're ever confused about what God is like, we can simply look to Jesus, what he said, what he did, and we get the fullest expression of what God is like. God has written himself into the story, not just so that he can walk around and be on a bus and like that song goes, what if God was one of us, just a stranger on a bus? Actually, God wrote himself in so that we could have relationship with him, so that we could come into an experience of securing life-transforming, consistent relationship with God himself. It's no longer an abstract idea, but God himself comes into our world, enters into history so that we could know him and have a relationship with him. And ultimately, the relationship that God establishes through Jesus Christ is what opens up the way for security and for meaning. 
that through relationship with him, we can have a sense, a deep sense of the security that God can bring and of the meaning that God can bring. So I think what we see, to bring this to a close, is that we've seen so far that relationship is something that we value as human beings. It's what we look to in our times of trauma. It's what we're comforted by in our moments of frustration and despair. And we've looked at that study from Deakin University, which ultimately says that there are three things that we've, we've noticed in the, in the culture today that people are looking to, and by looking to, are experiencing a level of happiness that other people who aren't looking to these things are not experiencing. And those things are security, meaning, and relationship. And what I've tried to do is try to obviously not give you an exhaustive picture that would be impossible in 25 minutes, but to, to draw out some thoughts to show that I believe Christianity and the Christian worldview and the Christian belief is able to ground these things of meaning, security, and relationship in a way, in a unique way, that I don't think many other systems of thought or beliefs are able to do. So I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's made sense. And if you're here and you don't yet agree with me, that's fantastic. I love it when people don't agree with me. Um, that's brilliant because this church is going to be running Alpha for, for a couple of weeks in about two or three weeks' time. There's two more evenings like this next Wednesday and the Wednesday after, and then Alpha is starting here. And that is an incredible way to ask your questions. I've run Alpha groups. I've led Alpha tables. And I love people bringing their honest questions, people bringing their skepticism. It's exactly the place for you to do that. So if you're here... And you're saying, Mike, that was interesting, but I don't quite buy it. That's fine. Alpha is a great place to, to explore that. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian. I want to encourage you to realize the, the power that you have in the Christian message, the real securing relational element that you have and the meaningful experience of what it is to be a Christian. It's there. It's, an ex- it's available to you as a Christian. And I want to encourage you to rethink that, to relook at that, and to let that strengthen and encourage you going from this evening. So thank you very much for listening. I hope that was interesting and helpful. And we're going to take a couple of minutes for questions, but I think Mike's going to lead us in that. <laughs> So, Mike, thank you. That was brilliant, wasn't it? Thoughts about happiness, thoughts about God, Christianity, real food for thought there. Uh, Mike uh, said you might not agree with that. That's absolutely fine, of course. What we're going to do is, I think it might be good to have a drink or have the opportunity to have another drink. Uh, Maybe break, sort of have a little break for about five minutes. And then Mike is up for any questions, um, just to... Uh, pick up on any of the themes that he's spoken about tonight. I should say, next week, one of Mike's friends is speaking about suffering, and uh, if there is a God, why, what about suffering? The following week after that, there's a, there's a talk about science, and, you know, what, what about Christianity and science? So um, those things will come the next couple of weeks, but why not grab a drink And uh, if you've got any questions, we'd love to hear them. Mike would love to hear them. You could write them. I could give you some paper and a pen if you want, and you could scribble them down uh, if you'd like to, uh, or if you'd prefer just to ask them, uh, do whatever you want. I'll give some pens and paper out, and then we'll come back in about five minutes' time and just have the opportunity to have a chat. So does that sound like a good plan? Good. Okay. See you in about five minutes or so. Is happiness? If it's about happiness, what exactly is happiness? Or at least maybe how am I defining happiness or how would Christianity define happiness? Is there a difference between joy and happiness or contentment and happiness? This is a really helpful clarifying question because what we're not saying is that we just need to be looking for things that are going to bring about spikes in our emotional levels all the time, and we're constantly feeling euphoric, and euphoria is the goal. If happiness is euphoric feelings or euphoria, I would say that we have got at least, at least a shallow definition of happiness, um, but I think not the Christian definition of happiness. So C.S. Lewis, again, he's one of my uh, people that I respect a lot. He's just got some amazing insights, and he 
distinguishes between joy and happiness in a really helpful way. You may have heard of the quote. He, he says that um, happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. Happiness depends on happenings, but joy depends on Christ. So if we make happiness in the sense of circumstances, euphoric feelings based on good circumstances, our aim and what we're going for, ultimately we're not going to be able to stay there very long. I mean, we all know that things happen that alter our moods and change our circumstances all the time. So if happiness is tied to circumstances or happenings, then we're not going to be very happy I don't think. If you're anything like me, you know, I wake up and I feel one way, depending on how I've slept. I brush my teeth and I feel another way. Um, I have breakfast and I feel something else. There's got to be a more sure foundation for our constancy and our joy than just a circumstance that's before us. So, yes, ultimately, there is a difference between happiness and joy. And I think the definition that I would feel comfortable saying is the Christian definition is one that is based on the consistency of Jesus, one that is based on him as a consistent being, an objective being that is not going to be altered by moods, circumstances, and things that are outside of our control. So I think that's how I'd begin to answer the question. But also I think happiness in Christian understanding certainly has to do with God's character, it has to do with basing our lives on who he is. And it also has to do with basing our, our lives on the promises that God has given, not just for the present and for our lives now, promises that are sure and that we have access to, promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise that a Christian can cling to and say that this is, this is the truth, and no matter what I feel, this is the reality of the situation. There's promises we have access to now, there's also promises that we have access to concerning the future. And this future is a future in which all tears will be wiped, wiped away. Revelation chapter 21 tells us. All tears will be wiped away. All mourning will cease. Everything that is wrong will be put right. So I think the joy that we are talking about or happiness that we're talking about is really, if we're going to choose the more accurate word, is joy. And that joy is based on the consistency of a consistent, well, consistency of God and his character, but also on the promises that he gives us for now and the promises that he gives us for a future that he is totally in control of. So does that, does that answer the question a little bit more for those that put that in there, or is there anything someone would like to add? I think it was, your, it was one of your questions, eh? Hey? Okay. <laughs> All right. There's a difference between, between the two. So I'll say it again, happiness has an element of chance in it because it comes from the word happenings and mm-hmm. you, you can't control the happenings in one's life so easily. And so therefore I thought there was a, a, a fundamental difference between happiness and joy. That was really the root of a question. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for the question. There were, there were actually a few people that, that sent in that question. So in terms of what it looks like to pursue happiness then, I think pursuing happiness is not necessarily the idea of pursuing a certain particular ideal set of circumstances. It's looking to a consistent God who makes promises for the present and promises for the future that we can confidently base our lives on and it can act as a sure foundation. I think Jesus did speak quite powerfully about this when he spoke about the man, a person that builds a house on the rock and the person that builds a house on the sand. It's a really powerful parable that he tells ultimately about the person that looks for and builds a life on um, unsure foundations and things that are going to be easily uprooted and easily swept away when things get difficult. And so the idea of what Jesus is saying is if you build your house on the rock, which is my life and my teaching, who I am, my character, things can happen. Things can, you know, so in this analogy or in this parable, the rains come, the storms come, the winds come, but the house stands firm on the foundation of his person, his character, and his teachings. The person that builds the house in the sand, which is essentially a person that looks to circumstances and ideal situations to bring about a sense of happiness and stability, will be swept away when adverse circumstances come across their path. So in terms of pursuing happiness, I think that's, that's what we're talking about as well. That's what it looks like. So let's not flog a dead horse, though. So I think we've kind of got that. Okay, so that was the first question. The second question was a really interesting one. It was... What about other religions? 
that seemed to promise relationship, that seemed to promise security, that seemed to promise meaning? Are there not other figures that have come as representatives of God that have promised these things? I think that's a, that's a very fair question to ask. And the person did put down um, Buddha, but as, I mean, essentially, Buddhism is an atheistic religion, so there's no God that Buddha is representing, so to speak. He is coming to point towards a teaching that will liberate us, essentially, from this world and the reality that, of the suffering and the pain that is in this world, that all of life is suffering, um, Buddhism teaches. And essentially, in order to rise above suffering, we need to extinguish the desires that lead to suffering. So it's about detachment. It's about rising above you know, the real situations and the difficulties that we find um, in this world. So no, Buddha would not be a representative of a god in that sense. Um, so that wouldn't be an equivalent to Christianity. And I think also when, we, when we're thinking about category of gods, it's very important to realize that there's a distinction between faiths like the Judeo-Christian religions um, and the Abrahamic faiths, which are essentially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, um, the faiths that come from Abraham, the patriarch of those three religions. And that distinguishes between creation and creator. So God is not like the creation in that he doesn't come from matter. He doesn't come from within the same stuff that um, he creates within and he creates human beings from. And so you might hear that, that particular statement from those that are of the atheist persuasion that they would say, you know, we've removed Thor, we've removed Zeus, we've removed you know, all of these other gods. We just go one further and remove Yahweh, the god of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And essentially that's a category error because all of those gods, according to the Greco-Roman mythology and understanding of the world and understanding of that system of gods and deities, is that they all came from the physical universe. They were all created and birthed from within the physical realm. They're from primordial soup. Whereas God, from the Christian understanding, is a God that is utterly distinct and precedes that which he creates. He is not part of the created world. So we've got to make sure that we are not mixing up these, these two categories. They are fundamentally different things. Nevertheless, we've got to ask the question, well, what about Islam? What about the Islamic faith, which seems to have this figure, Muhammad, who is a prophetic-type figure who represents God? Now, that is, that is obviously a more relevant question to what we've been talking about. I think what's important to consider when we're thinking about this is the question of well, what is true? Because ultimately, it's, it's, it's not so much about what all the options are on the board as much as it is though we need to consider the options on the board. That's only fair and right. But we need to ask the question, well, what is true? Because it's what is true. That's what, we, what we're after and what we're getting at. And we've got to ask the question, what are the reasons that we have to believe that a certain set of beliefs is true? And I think when we're considering... Christianity, we've got to ask the question, well, what are the compelling reasons we have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus has done what he said he's done, and is therefore the unique representative and unique spokesperson for God on these issues of relationship, security, and meaning? And I think there are incredible bits and pieces that we have that we can put together that cumulatively give us a strong case that Jesus isn't just like another prophetic type figure that comes to claim and speak in God's name. Ultimately, he is unique in that he is the founder of the religion, or the founder of, that's not, didn't come to found a religion, but, but for the sake of what I'm saying, let's leave it there. He came, founder of the religion, claimed to be God himself. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just someone that comes to point out a particular way or demarcate a way. He comes um, as God himself. And we've got to ask the question, well, is that true or not? And what, what reasons do we have to believe that that could be true? And I happen to think there are really great reasons to believe that what he said holds uh, a unique position of truth in our culture and in the kind of religious, in the religious marketplace. So I haven't, I don't think I've directly answered the question of what about other religions and their particular stance or represent, representative figure on these issues. But I have, hopefully I've been able to just open that up a little bit more Let's distinguish the categories and let's ask the question, well, what reason do we have to believe that this particular person, this particular teaching, this particular way is the true way? 
And let's make that the primary uh, pursuit and concern in trying to understand um, if this is something we need to accept or to reject. So hopefully, does that make sense? Does anyone want to come back at that or add something on to that question, that answer? Um, sorry, could I just clarify something? You yeah. talked about the relationship, mm. and you sort of grouped Islam and uh, Christianity, and I forget mm. what the other ones, all together. Um, now, as I understand it, um, the, th- the thing that differentiates Christianity is that there is a relationship. Yeah. Uh, God wants a relationship with his people. Mm. Um, and that uh, Islam surely doesn't... I, 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 perhaps I've misunderstood you, but surely mm. Islam does not offer that. There's yeah. no relationship there that I can... With the... Can we come back to, to you, Heather? Have you said what you wanted to say? Yeah. yeah that's, Mike, do you want th- to respond you. to yeah, that? Yeah, thank you. I think it's... Yeah, thank you. It's helpful to clarify. I think what I was, what I was trying to say in, in grouping them together in the Abra- Abrahamic faith is to say that they all have their roots or through Abraham. So Abraham, obviously his seed was both Ishmael and Isaac. And the Christian line follows through from Isaac, and the Islamic line follows through from Ishmael. So there's a grouping together in terms of Abraham as the patriarch um, of these three. Not that they all believe the same thing, but that there's that particular distinction. And then I think well, I heard what you said, but I'm not, actually much if everyone else did. So maybe you can just repeat it for everyone. No, it was only really just to say in response to Anne's question, I I think that Muslims would say they do have a relationship with God, as would Jews, I'm sure. I think it's more about the nature of the relationship, that they don't have a relationship with the Father God, and it's a more distant relationship. But I, I, I think you'd find that if you spoke to a Muslim, they would definitely feel that they had a relationship with God. But the difference in the relationship is that Muslims have to earn their standing with God mm. where they believe, whereas we believe that we can't possibly earn our relationship with God. We, we are gifted um, our forgiveness. We're gifted our um, salvation. And that, that is fundamentally different. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. I do think we need to be careful. Maybe we're just understanding the word relationship in different ways or collapsing maybe too many things into the word relationship because I, I do think there's a fundamental difference in the way Muslims and Christians would understand the way to and then how to relate to God. So the word Islam means to submit. It means to submit to the will of Allah. It means to obey totally, fully, in everything, unquestionably. Um, Allah is seen as sovereign. Everything is determined by him. He is entirely holy and other and distinct. And in one sense, that's similar to the understanding of the Christian God in that we understand God to be transcendent. He is other. He is holy. He is beyond human category. And we would sympathize with Muslims on that point. However, we would also say that in the Christian understanding of who God is, he's not just transcendent, he is also imminent. He's also the God that is near. And, you know, as Jesus was promised to be Emmanuel, God with us, we know that God has done the unthinkable, at least to the the Muslim, that he has entered into human mess, that he's entered into this world, something that Allah would never be permitted to do, would never think of doing, according to Islamic belief. And I think your point is brilliant as well. And that Nabil Qureshi, who writes a book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, he, a former Muslim who has come to put his trust in Jesus as his savior, ultimately says, he says the exact same thing, that for him, it was always a balancing act. It was always about thinking about what he had done wrong in that day and then trying to, to do two or three times as many good things in order to cancel out those bad things. So there is that real sense of earning your favor and your place. You're not guaranteed There's never an assurance of salvation in the Islamic faith that can be definitely granted to you 
apart from certain acts that can you know, essentially be performed that guarantee that. But, so there are fundamental differences, definitely, um, but there are also things that we can sympathize with um, as Christians in the Muslim faith. Anyone else want to add to that? Are we... Okay. Someone want to add? Okay. And then we'll move on to the last question. I'm just sharing a thought I had during this discussion um, that the ultimate for St. Paul was faith, hope, and love. And as you can see, security, our security is in our faith, Christian faith. Meaning is our Christian hope and relationship. He talks about love, faith, hope, and love. Mm, thank you for that. Um, it's very good to, to think about. And I think the, the question that, that I'm hoping that, that we kind of thinking a bit more about and I'm hoping as Christians we're thinking a bit more about is challenging that perception and trying to speak to that perception that actually faith is just simply a blind leap into the dark. And it's something that we do despite evidence or in the teeth of evidence, but actually it's something that's based on good reasons. Um, I think that's something that the Zacharias Trust and I particularly am very passionate about is saying, what are the good reasons that we have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? But thank you. Thank you very much for that. That's helpful. Yeah. Okay, let's make this the last comment and then I'll go to the last question that we can wrap up. Can I ask a question, actually? So okay. if you're talking about other religions, I would say that secularism is the strongest religion in our society or non-religion um, and if Richard Dawkins is one of the main proponents of atheism um, how, how can he explain sacrificial love so I can understand that in an evolutionary biologist's worldview, we will behave sacrificially towards our children or towards our mate, but I don't understand how an evolutionary biologist could explain sacrificial love towards people that we're not related to. Mm. And therefore, I don't understand how an atheist can have a consistent worldview when they can see people, as in 9-11, for example, the, the firemen of New York behave with complete self-sacrifice. And uh, mm. those are examples around us every day amongst all the horrors that we, we see. Mm. Could you answer that in one minute, please? In one minute or less. I can do, I can do my utmost to answer it in a minute um, or less. So I think the, the, it's very important to say at the outset that those that are atheists to hold a worldview position that denies God can definitely be um, sacrificial, can definitely be loving, can definitely exercise kindness. I think we've got to be, I know you're not saying this, but I think we do need to be careful sometimes in implying that those that don't believe in God can't be kind or generous or sacrificial or loving. They certainly can, and there are many uh, people that don't believe in God that sometimes put Christians to shame in a very big way in the time and energy and finances that they are giving to charities and to relief and into aid. So I think it's important that we, we say that up front. Now the question that, or at least you said something very interesting there, which I think is more what we need to think about, is how they ground that based on their worldview. So how do you ground the exercising of love and charity and particularly sacrificial love um, to those around you if it in no way benefits you in return if you have an atheistic worldview. So it's easy, and it's easy to ground selfless acts and selfless love when you take on a theistic, particularly Christian theistic worldview because that's exactly who Jesus is and he commands us to lay down our lives for those in the world, those that are the least. We're supposed to serve and love and accept those of the least. So there is an objective way to ground a life of sacrifice and service in theism, but particularly Christian theistic worldview. How someone does it in atheism or evolutionary biological mindset is another matter, essentially, because what you've implied but haven't quite said is that 
in the atheistic or evolutionary bio- biological mindset is that it's a survival of the fittest. It's about replicating your DNA. It's about the selfish gene, which is the title of one of Dawkins' books, and making sure that you are passing on you know, good genes and making sure that um, we are propagating a race or a world or a gene pool that is going to lead to the right kind of people, where the weak are essentially systematically... Um, I'm trying to find the right word, systematically kind of dwindle out um, as we propagate the strong race. So I'm not really answering your question as much as trying to clarify a little bit of what, what you're saying, and I'm agreeing with you that it's incredibly difficult, based on that worldview, to ground a sacrificial ethic when the primary worldview that you have says that it's about the strong gene being passed on in order for humanity to survive the elements and forces that are against us in this material, physical world. So I, I, I would love to see someone try and defend it on an absolute level, not just a we create our own meaning or we do what we need to do. When we see someone that is in need, we simply reach out because it's an instinct. Well, my question would be, why is it an instinct? Why, why do we instinct, instinctly want to give up our lives for our child um, that is dying and will not add possibly anything to this world at all in their lifetime, or at least for the next few years, because you know, they're in a, a state of not being able to do that physically in their, in their capacity. Why would we instinctively do that? You know, I, I don't think you can absolutely ground that based on the atheistic, materialistic worldview. On the other hand, I think you can powerfully ground that and easily ground that based on the Christian understanding of who Jesus is and what he commands his followers to do. So I would love to see Christians doing more of that. I think we all would. We would love to see Christians obeying and following Christ in serving and loving a world that is in desperate need of him. So maybe we can leave that there for the moment, and if someone's unsatisfied with that, I'm happy afterwards too. I think we'll leave it there just because I don't want to keep everyone too long, but happy to chat afterwards. Um, Then I think the last question that I'll just quickly spend a minute or two on is... (laughs) Why do people look so miserable if Christians, if Christians have apparently have the answer to this issue of happiness or joy, as we've described it? Why do Christians look so miserable? Well, I don't know. Um, I guess you can't always tell by someone's face what they're truly feeling. Um, maybe that's one superficial way of responding. Uh, but another is... I think just to sincerely acknowledge that there are factors and issues in this world that contribute to a difficult life, even for the Christian. It's not as though for the Christian they're absolved of all difficulty, of all disappointments. Some Christians struggle with depression their entire lives. That's a fact. It's a chemical issue that they are on medication for and doing their best to combat, but they are struggling with that their entire... And we... I think it's very important that we are not making those people feel less human because they are not able to exhibit or experience as much joy as the rest of us or other people can. I think it's very important that we don't make people feel like they are not good Christians or less human because of that. These are real issues that still affect a person even as a Christian. Now, that's not to say there's no difference when someone becomes a Christian. I think there's a powerful change that happens, and I experienced that in my own anxiety. I no longer am am someone that struggles with crippling anxiety. I had public anxiety. I had um, uh, social anxiety. I can't remember exactly what the word is now, but essentially that meant that I said no to most public environments and most settings where I didn't know anyone. And I was laughing on the way here, because I was on the train by myself to a place that I'd never been to before to speak to people I'd never met before. And if you'd said that to me 10 years ago, that I would have been doing that, I would have run like Jonah in the other direction. And uh, it's just funny that that's, this is something that I'm doing and I'm paid to do uh, after my experiences of anxiety. So there is a definite change that happens when someone becomes a Christian. There's a new power, there's a new, as we spoke about, a new identity that's available and given to them. There's new resources that are available. However, there is still a real sense of the pressures and difficulties of life that is present even for the Christian. And it's very, very important to acknowledge that. And then I think lastly, 
there's a difference between you know, the signpost and the destination. You know, so oftentimes, if we were in, just to use an analogy to try and communicate this, if we were walking down the street together, all of us, it would look intimidating, firstly. But secondly, um, and it was late afternoon, the sun was kind of dipping down, and someone walked past me, who was walking down the street at this time of the day, and saw my shadow. What would they see? Well, they would see someone with a very long head, probably, because of the way the sun is making me look. They would maybe be able to distinguish that I've got short hair. Um, Perhaps they'd be able to make out some kind of facial structure, some kind of body type, I don't know. They would get a sense of me, but ultimately they would never be able to know me on the basis of the shadow that is there and that is cast as a result of the time of day and the way in which they're looking at me. And I think oftentimes... When we're looking at Christians, we're very quick to dismiss Christianity on the basis of what we're seeing there, forgetting that actually they are, in a sense, the shadow. They're pointing to a substance. They're pointing to, to God, to Jesus, who has essentially created a space and environment in which being a Christian is possible, but not to mistake the shadow for the substance, I think, is a very important consideration when we are looking to Christians and asking, well, why aren't they... Why aren't they as happy as I think they ought to be? Why aren't they doing as much as I think they ought to be? That doesn't excuse Christians. It doesn't excuse laziness. It doesn't excuse not following Jesus. I think I'm merely saying is let's not miss the wood for the trees and let's not dismiss Christianity as an entire way of looking at the world on the basis of someone who is not representing it very well. Let's ask the question, what is the founder like? Let's go back to who Jesus is and say, are there good reasons to believe this is true? What is he like, and what is he as the source and substance like? And I think that's what we need to be engaging with, and on that best basis, making a decision either to accept or reject it, not on the basis of a Christian's either happiness or unhappiness that they are giving off. So I think think we should leave it there. Thank you for your questions and for for coming back um, at me. I really appreciate it. I hope this has been a helpful time for you. I've really enjoyed being with you. Thanks to... Mike and the, and the team for, for helping and for setting up and for inviting me. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.